You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. I'm Nate Kading, and this is Real Success. This is the Corridor Business Journal podcast, where we explore the life and careers of the Corridor's most influential business leaders. Economist David Barker knows a thing or two about leadership. As a member of the Iowa Board of Regents with a diverse background in higher education, banking, and real estate, he's sought after for his insights on education, economic policy, business, and politics. I talked to David about his family's leadership in education and real estate investing and management, his path from West High to Cal Berkeley, to the London School of Economics, to the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, as well as his fusion of key roles in higher education, entrepreneurship, and public service. I chatted with David about his influences, his thoughts on the economy and business trends in the wake of COVID-19, as well as his daily media routine. I learned a lot and I think you will too. Stay tuned. This episode of Real Success with Nate Kading is brought to you by Midwest One Bank. Midwest One Bank is the proud partner for doers and entrepreneurs in the corridor and beyond. As an SBA preferred lender, our team is ready to help you reach your business goals. It's empowered money management. It's Midwest One Bank, member FDIC. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. Uh, you know, when I, I think of your story, I immediately think of your your dad, Ed. And of course, Ed is a renowned community member here in Iowa City. He was the first ever principal uh, at Iowa City West High School, which is my alma mater. And of course, uh, uh, also a very successful businessman in his own right and started the, the real estate um, multifamily uh, apartment uh, company that you guys own and that your family owns and manages today. And, you know, a big part of, of Ed's story is education and business. And of course, that's part of, of your story today as well, being on the, serving on the board of regents with, for the state of Iowa. And of course, managing the, the Barker um, financial business here today and managing the apartment business as well. So can you talk a bit about your dad and your upbringing? Um, here in Iowa City and some of the, the lessons learned from, from growing up with him as an influence? Well, sure. Um, well, you know, we, we uh, started out uh, in uh, smaller towns uh, in Sheraton, Iowa and Boone, Iowa. And then uh, he, uh, he got what he considered his dream job, which was uh, principal of West High. And uh, so we moved here. Uh, he, it was a very busy, uh, a lot of uh, hard work for him. Uh, but uh, I always felt a part of what he was doing because, you know, I was in the school system as a student. Uh, I could go to the basketball games and football games and plays and concerts and things that he went to. And so it, it kind of felt in a lot of ways like a, like a family enterprise. And the way we lived was preparation for his business career because, uh, you know, we, uh, we spent no money. Uh, we were uh, very, very frugal and uh, with the idea of saving up money uh, to invest at some point. So, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, never uh, went to restaurants, uh, never went to movie theaters, uh, never got haircuts. Uh, you know, uh, it was our, our trips, uh, our family vacations were camping and cooking food uh, out on a fire. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, he had enough uh, saved up to start that uh, business career, with that, which my uh, mother was very much a part of. That's awesome. And do you kind of remember when that initial transition, would you call that business career kind of, it was a side hustle, is how they call it today, right? Yeah. A little bit like he was, I mean, it's a full-time job as an educator and a principal. And can you remember some of those early days as, as sure. your business started? Well, yeah, there were some false starts. Uh, he uh, in, he uh, 
tried out a few things that did not work out. Uh, there were some real estate investments that did not work out. There was a, uh, a, a try at printing up uh, little cards that had Iowa football history uh, on them that he was going to you know, print and sell and just mm. didn't work and a few other things like that. And then uh, one day my mother uh, checked out a book from the public library, which was uh, you know, how to make a uh, million dollars in real estate. <laughs> and she read it and it seemed to uh, be something that could be done in Iowa City. It seemed to make sense. And uh, so she uh, started talking to my dad about that. And uh, they had already rented out a house that we used to live in in Boone. And so kind of understood the business. And uh, so they started looking around for property to buy. And the way it worked was that, you know, my, my dad did the uh, finance uh, and my uh, my mom uh, did the operations, and we all kind of pitched in in different ways. That's awesome. What are if you look back on that? You know, start investing in real estate, and you know the beginnings of a you know long decades long you know very successful real estate company. I mean, what were go back and get a little bit to some of the origin stories there of how you got started. Like, what are what are some keys to success for starting a you know, as a real estate investor or starting a, a real estate type company like that? Well, I think uh, one is uh, being willing to put in the, the time that it takes to make the operation successful. And uh, so, you know, he, he would, uh, you know, as soon as he was done with, uh, with work as the principal, he would be over there, uh, you know, at the properties uh, taking care of things and having uh, my mother available uh, to help with operations. That was important. Uh, being able to, you know, understand how the financing worked and put the financing together. Uh, being able to convince bankers to take a chance uh, on you. I think that was very important. And I know my dad was surprised at how hard that was uh, to convince bankers that this was, uh, was a good idea. But, uh, you know, he was able to do that and kind of borrowed from every possible source that he could. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in order to get that going. Do you remember, was there a point in time in your, in your dad and mom's career starting this company? Was there some sort of inflection point? Was there, was it a particular property they bought or where they, you know, the family kind of looked at it and said, Hey, I think we kind of got our, the wind underneath our wings here. Talk a bit about, you know, was there, was there a, a moment there when, when you kind of turned the corner? Well, there was, and it was uh, Scottsdale apartments in Coralville. Um, he had been buying small, you know, kind of rundown apartment buildings around Iowa city. And, um, and those were doing fine, uh, but they took a lot of work and they had, uh, you know, problems all the time. And he didn't really have the scale uh, to, uh, to, to make it a, a, a really profitable uh, business. Mm -hmm. But uh, Scottsdale Apartments, uh, which is a large uh, property in Coralville, came up for sale. And um, how many units was that? That was, I how believe, 100, 176, I think. 176 wow. units. Yeah. And... Um, you know, it was it was not easy to put the money together, but he, you know he sold all of his other properties to uh, to raise money for it. He uh, you know borrowed from the bank, uh, took all of our savings, and uh, you know put it into it. And uh, and he was not the highest bidder for that property. Hmm. Um, he, the uh, the the seller wanted to keep some of their money invested in it. That was another way that he was able to do it was that the seller was willing to carry uh, some of the financing. Um, but the seller, since he was leaving money in it wanted to make sure he could absolutely trust uh, the person that he was selling to, to, you know, manage the property well and keep paying him. And so, you know, he was able to convince the uh, seller of that and, and buy it for less than other people were uh, willing to pay. 
then it just then it just took off from there. And did you work within the family company all your all the way through through high school before you went off to college? I did, and it was a variety of things from uh, you know mowing grass and uh, digging out foundations uh, to uh, knocking on doors to collect rent, uh, working in the office uh, that sort of thing. And then my wife Sarah, uh, she started working in the business. We, we met in high school. And she started working in the business very early on, and that was, you know, crawling through attics to pull uh, <laughs> pull cable for cable TV, which was just being uh, uh, started then, and uh, working in the offices, uh, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, and everybody says real estate investing is this sexy thing, right? It's there's there's some there's a lot of dirty work that goes along with it, for sure. <laughs> yeah, um, and then you know you've got a you know an amazing kind of education career after you left high school. You got a you know bachelor's of arts degree at the University of Cal Berkeley, PhD in economics from the University of Chicago. Was, can you stem your interest in finance and economics? Does that come from kind of those early lessons of being frugal that your mom and dad taught you? Or how do you, where do you trace back your, your interest in economics? Oh, absolutely. From, uh, from my dad. Uh, you know, he would, uh, you know, early on, he would teach things like, you know, don't touch the principal. You know, if you've got an amount of principal, uh, you don't live on that. You only live off the earnings from that principal. Um, and, and many other things like that, that had me thinking from an early age about how business worked. And I took a variety of courses, but the economics courses were the ones that clicked for me because I think because it did, uh, you know, fit in with, uh, with that background. And what sent you from the middle America here off to Cal Berkeley? That's, uh, that's a bit of a departure. It, 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 it was, but, you know, part of it was probably that my dad was principal here. And so when I grew up, it seemed like everyone knew who I was, uh, you know, before I got into a class, you know, all of my teachers knew who I was and I had known them since I was a little kid. Um, and, uh, you know, so, you know, you're well known when your dad is principal uh, of the high school. And I think I wanted to try to be on my own and a little more independent in a place where no one, <laughs> absolutely no one knew anything about me. Right. And uh, California was as far away as I could get. So that's where I went. And that would have been in the 70s? 1979. So, Cal so Berkeley, California in the, in the late 70s, that would be an interesting time. What did it you was, And I paid for that with a Navy ROTC scholarship. Oh, wow. Uh, so uh, it was very different because uh, Berkeley was a, still a very radical place. And I was... Uh, you know, marching through campus in uniform uh, with all these uh, demonstrators around. Sure. What do you What do you take? Looking back on your time, what do you take from that? What were some of the key lessons learned that have informed your uh, kind of perspective on business and life today? Well, I think Berkeley is where I started actually working hard uh, in high school. Uh, you know, I was interested in some of the classes, but if I could find a sh shortcut, I would always take it. I was much more interested in being with friends and meeting girls and, uh, uh, you know, having fun, watching TV, you know, yeah. all of that than I was in school. And so I, I put a lot of uh, my energy into figuring out ways not to do much schoolwork. But at Berkeley, that kind of changed, partly because the ROTC people were a pretty serious bunch and also because I couldn't get into the dormitories. I was 3,000th on the waiting list. Sure. And so I ended up in an apartment off campus with a bunch of graduate students. It was the only place I could find and they worked all the time. So I kind of followed their lead. And uh, so through college, I, I worked pretty hard and studied a lot. Did you know all along that, you know, economics was going to, or at least as you got into Cal Berkeley, that, that was going to be your path. And did you start looking at places to continue that education? And how did you end up in, at the University yeah. of Chicago? Well, I, um, you know, I spent a year in London at the London School of Economics. 
And I met a lot of people there that were familiar with the University of Chicago's approach to economics. And uh, so that got me interested. And, uh, you know, I, I applied to a few places, uh, you know, got in, but uh, that's, uh, that was where I wanted to be because, uh, you know, a lot of those professors there, Gary Becker, Robert Lucas, Sam Peltzman, uh, those people were kind of heroes to me uh, by that time. And it was, uh, it was really amazing to be able to uh, study uh, uh, with them. How would you describe sort of your, if you were to paint a general philosophy of David Barker's economic approach or, you know, your take or your position, your philosophy around economics, could you sum that up in any sort of way? I mean, is there a certain position that you have that kind of informs the rest of the way that you look at economics? Well, Milton Friedman was a big influence on me, and I still uh, believe a lot of the things that he said. I think that uh, in general, markets work well. We should trust markets and, uh, and, and let them work. And uh, I, I think that's it's very simple, but the, the, the biggest lesson that I've taken uh, from economics. Chat a bit about your kind of professional journey. What got you back to Iowa City? Were there other stops along the way before you got here? Yeah, so my first job out of graduate school was with the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. You know, I looked at a few academic types of things um, and thought hard about that and almost ended up, uh, you know, as a professor, which would have been great. But I kind of wanted to be out in the you know, I, I don't want to say real world because academia is part of the real world, but uh, you know, out you know, interacting with, uh, with business and seeing the economy work firsthand. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I was an economist at the Fed, lived in New York City, uh, which was great. Uh, and my wife, Sarah, got a job also in, uh, in New York working for uh, Pepsi. And so it was, it was a really exciting time to, uh, to live there. And uh, it was great to be involved in, you know, kind of policy questions that had very practical impacts, I, you know, I, particularly with, in the banking sector. So I worked on uh, uh, bank supervision issues at the Fed, mm -hmm. um, learned a lot about how the, how the banking industry works. I, I did that for, for a while and started to realize, though, that uh, I kind of wanted to be on bus in business on my own. And the early 90s seemed like a great time to do that. Real estate prices were low, interest rates were coming down, and so I started looking for uh, opportunities to invest. The family business was sort of the next entree into that, or did you kind of branch off on your own from the beginning? Yeah, so my wife and I looked at some uh, opportunities in New York City. Uh, we thought about buying a couple of buildings there. Quickly realized that there were advantages to doing business in a place that we understood better. Even though we'd lived in New York for a while, it just it was still kind of uh, foreign to us, and we we decided that we might not do well investing in an area that we didn't uh, fully understand. And sure. so we started looking for properties in uh, in Iowa. I took a leave of absence from my job, came back here, uh, looked around, uh, and we looked at properties in Cedar Rapids, in Omaha, in St. Louis, Minneapolis, uh, but ended up buying in the Quad Cities. Uh, mm -hmm. So we found a property there, and that that kind of acted kind of like uh, you know Scottsdale apartment did for my dad. We uh, sure. uh, we bought that property, and it it ended up doing well. Now, to kind of fast forward to some contemporary uh, issues today, I mean you you've got an amazing uh, perspective on Fed policy, right? Like there's a lot of things that all of us in the world are learning about, you know, whether it's uh, pandemics or you know, social rights and a whole variety of things. And, you know, certainly some of the buzzwords out there, especially in, in business and in economics is, is federal monetary policy and some of those things. How, what's your perspective on 
what we're going through now from a uh, economic perspective and you know did you ever foresee anything like this coming down the pipeline from a for the fed to be able to take such a drastic action as they have no no i don't think so no so many things about the last just few months have been surprising um but i think um the most interesting thing about the fed lately has been you know people worrying that oh the fed has run out of ammunition or uh you know rates are already so low there's nothing more that the fed can do well the fed keeps coming up with things that they can do and i think that they will continue to do that and um given what's going on now i think they will uh, uh be finding new and creative ways to uh stimulate the economy and and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing we'll find out but uh they are are not going to be passive in all of this is there something that like the common layperson should know about the Fed and its policy, especially in this time? I mean, it's, it's a complex thing, right? If you try to dive into it and fully understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, is there something for just the, an average business guy like myself to, to understand about what the Fed is embarking on right now in this moment? Well, the, the, uh, the, Fed, the, the Fed has been politically independent. It was set up in a way that no president or Congress could influence it, you know, too, too much, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the terms of the uh, members of the Board of Governors are staggered and long. Uh, so that gives them quite a bit of independence. Uh, they are not subject to the normal budgeting procedures that uh, federal agencies are. Uh, you know, the Fed earns its own money. Uh, and uh, then, you know, the extra money that it has, it gives back to the Treasury. Uh, which is a very different sort of arrangement. Um, they're not subject to the same pay scales, you know, as 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 uh, employees of the federal government. So it has a lot of independence, but that independence is always under attack. Mm -hmm. um, you know, politicians would love to uh, control uh, the central bank. Right. Uh, that goes way back. Uh, you know, there are many examples in history uh, of presidents wanting to do that, and. Now that we're facing such serious economic problems, that temptation is even greater. And, um, and I think we are maybe starting to see uh, you know, more political influence uh, on the Fed and the Fed maybe you know, working more closely with the, uh, with the Treasury Department, uh, say, than before, and, and perhaps with a completely different uh, kind of monetary policy to come. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. There's no, no yeah. doubt about it. Um, just switching gears just a little bit, you know, something I've always admired about you getting to know you uh, the, more the last few years and, and your wife, Sarah, is I think you, sometimes people kind of think of successful business folks and then service to community maybe as uh, two separate things, but you, you both uh, have done an amazing job of serving the community in a variety of different capacities and then you know, running a successful local business. Talk a bit about what led you to your role at the Board of Regents, um, serving the state of Iowa in that capacity. Um, kind of what, how, what value do you, unique value do you view yourself bringing uh, to that role? And then, of course, we can get into some of the challenges facing higher education today, which is you came into that position at a, at a, at a very uh, challenging time, no doubt. Well, you know, just for me personally, I think that the, uh, I spent a lot of time, when, when, when we had young children, uh, there was no time for uh, that sort of thing, at least for me. Um, I uh, was pretty focused just on family and business, and 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 
I, I also taught, you know, so I taught at uh, University of Chicago and University of Iowa uh, mm-hmm. during those years. But when our kids got older and now are grown and uh, uh, living uh, in, in different places, uh, I, you know, I know my wife, Sarah, already had, uh, you know, spent, uh, was, was spending quite a bit of time on, on various boards and foundations and uh, uh, service work. And uh, I started thinking about doing some of that. And, uh, uh, you know, I got started with some, some political things. I, you know, I got involved in uh, uh, Republican Party of Iowa, working uh, on, on uh, some campaigns and things like that. And uh, then that led to a, uh, you know, a call from uh, governor's office saying, would you be interested in, uh, you know, in this position? And uh, I, it seemed, I thought it fit my interests uh, really well. I mean, living in Iowa City, I, I know a lot about the uh, University of Iowa, and I've spent a lot of time in uh, higher education, both as a student and, uh, and teaching. Uh, so it seemed like a good, a good opportunity to, uh, uh, to do some, uh, some public service. How do you characterize the position that higher education is in today. And I know you and I have shared among some groups, you know, some interesting prognostications of what the COVID-19 crisis means for higher education now and in the future and changes that may come down the pipeline or maybe accelerated from the state of Iowa's perspective. And obviously under your uh, watchful eye, University of Northern Iowa, Iowa State here in Iowa City, University of Iowa, these are critically important entities to the success of the state, to the economy of this state. How do we navigate our way through uh, this time? And uh, from the state's perspective, what, how do you, what are the big challenges ahead and how do we, how do we work through them? Well, one of the things you said there about accelerating change, I think is a really important one that there were trends underway before the COVID uh, pandemic uh, that were concerning. Um, you know, potentially more market share in education going to online uh, universities, Um, uh, demographic trends that would mean fewer students, uh, you know, five or 10 years in the future. And we had already, you know, started thinking a lot about that and we're trying to plan for those things. Then COVID just accelerated all of that so much. I mean, boom, all of a sudden, every course had to be online in a very short period of time. Uh, and uh, and uh, suddenly we're looking at potentially big drops in enrollment. So these things that we thought we had, you know, years or decades to adapt to suddenly are here in a big way. And so I think that's the, the primary challenge is dealing with these things that we have thought about, but that we thought we had more time to deal with. Yeah. And then, of course, we've got, you know, a key element of success in business is making the most out of a finite amount of resources and being able to make hard decisions. What are some of the hard decisions coming down the pipeline um, for our state institutions, higher education institutions now with, you know, with resources being drained a bit? Well, it depends a lot on what happens this fall. If uh, enrollment is, uh, you know, reasonably close to normal, uh, then we still have hard choices because we've, you know, we've lost a lot of money uh, just over the last uh, several months. Uh, and, uh, you know, we had, uh, we had an $8 million cut also in our uh, appropriation from the, uh, from the state. So we've, we've got to deal with that either way. But if enrollment drops significantly, if, uh, you know, if students are, uh, you know, not willing to come back onto campus or decide to take a, take a year off, uh, then we'll have even bigger challenges. 
But so I think that means finding efficiencies, finding ways that we can do things uh, you know, uh, for lower cost, ways that we can collaborate between the three uh, universities uh, to, uh, to save costs. And uh, if things get, uh, you know, get, get worse, uh, maybe we have to think hard about you know, all of the different things that we do and whether we can continue doing all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what a, what a fascinating time to be in your position uh, of leadership here within the state. I'm sure there's you know, no shortage of tough decisions that need to be made, but of course, important ones. Um, back to, back to the, the Barker uh, financial business, what, what are some of the goals that are on the horizons for you guys? If, if, you, if we fast forward till, say, 2030, um, where do you want the company to be? What do you What do you guys want to accomplish here in the next ten years? Well, you know, when I was younger, I was taking on debt and taking on lots of projects, and I ended up probably with uh, probably with more projects than I should have. We've got you know dozens of different things going on. Uh, so I think over the next ten years, it's uh, more digesting those uh, those projects that we've taken on, and uh, maybe. Uh, uh, maybe not maybe not scaling back in size, but scaling back in the variety of things that we do and sure. uh, picking out the things that are core and the things that are not and uh, focusing on the uh, on those core uh, core businesses. When you're not, you know, working on your business or uh, serving in the border regions, you know, what are, what are what does David do in his off time? Talk a bit about uh, some of those. How do you how do you rest your mind? How do you take your mind off of work and some of the other trying trying things that are happening? Well, I don't really. Um, uh, you know, these days, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, Sarah and I both are pretty much focused uh, most of the time. You know, again, when we had young kids, it was very different. We would take, uh, we would take long uh, trips, long vacations. Mm -hmm. uh, we would uh, uh, go, you know, on a lot of hikes and uh, a lot of other, do a lot of other things uh, like that. But um, uh, recently, uh, with the kids gone, we've kind of immersed ourselves in these uh, projects and sure. uh, feel like it's kind of, maybe it's kind of peak, uh, peak time for us in our careers <laughs> to, to really focus a lot. And maybe, maybe 10 years from now, that'll change and we'll be uh, uh, spending a lot less time on it. But for now, it's kind of, you know, pedal to the metal. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt. There's no, no shortage of things to digest and challenges out there for, <laughs> for every business owner today. Um, no doubt about it. Um, well, I, we could, we could talk for another hour. All this stuff is incredibly fascinating, but we like to end uh, all these interviews with just some rapid fire questions to kind of get a little uh, different, different look at you and some of your interests and likes that are out there. Um, David, if you could contribute your success that you've had in all the different facets of your uh, professional and personal life during your career, how much would you contribute to hard luck and how, or how, hard work and how much would you contribute to luck? Uh Hard luck, maybe. <laughs> Some yeah, hard luck, that's a, that's a, a few thing. Things, yeah. A few things I'll attribute to that. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it, it, it would be nice to say that it was all uh, hard work, but there was some, you know, there's, there's luck involved also. I mean, like, you look back to Scottsdale Apartments, uh, you know, my dad was uh, fortunate to buy that at a time when he could get some fixed rate financing and inflation was just starting to take off. Mm -hmm. um, same thing for us, that uh, we got into the Quad Cities at a time when uh, that the economy was soft and uh, was 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 taking off. Um, so I don't know, you know, 50-50, uh, I, I guess uh, it, it might be a good breakdown. Yeah, being sounds like some the ability to be opportunistic as well, right? When the luck shows its face, being able to jump on right. that opportunity for sure. 
Um, and you've done a few other things uh, during your career. And I know, you know, with your investments and all the different stuff, you get a wide variety of things that come across your radar. But if given the chance, what profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? You know, if I guess maybe uh, maybe being a writer. Uh, I think it would be great to, I mean, I think back to the days when like, you know, I was writing my dissertation and writing a few, uh, you know, articles for academic journals and I really, uh, enjoyed that. So, uh, uh, maybe, uh, maybe that's what I would do instead. Great. And is, is there someone that you've admired through your career, a business leader or economist? I know you, uh, you know, you mentioned Milton Friedman, but is there anyone else that you've studied perhaps in the real estate sector? Um, that's been a, someone you've looked up to. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, people that I look up to in the academic world. Um, uh, in business, uh, I don't know, maybe, uh, you know, maybe Warren Buffett, uh, someone who um, is able to uh, uh, balance a huge number of different projects and be able to uh, uh, provide important insights to uh, all of those. And, and often brilliant insights that uh, academic economists um, have a hard time appreciating sure how about a uh and you mentioned you guys are kind of all systems go right now but if you do squeeze uh an hour or so away is there a podcast or tv show or anything uh out there that's non non-business related it's been so long since i've had time to do that that I, i'm afraid i can't i don't have anything that i can uh hopefully hopefully someday what's in your like what's your morning what's your way to digest news how are you taking that in on a daily basis, there's some sort of system or process to that or is Yeah, there there's a whole sort of round of uh, websites that I check, uh, you know, and, and scan the headlines and, uh, and read articles. Uh, on the Board of Regents, I also get a great uh, news feed from our communications uh, people uh, on everything that's related to, uh, you know, our institutions. Um, Chronicle of Higher Education and a couple of others uh, are also very good uh, for that every day. Uh, but yeah, it's just kind of a, a straight round of uh, round of websites to uh, to check out. What are, and I also get the New York Times at home, so I try and uh, try and look at that. Great. What are two or three websites just off the top of your head in finance or economics or business that that are part well, of the regular rotation? Sure. So you know, Wall Street Journal. Uh, there's a uh, an economist uh, blog site called uh, Marginal Revolution uh, that I look at. That's Tyler Cowen, uh, an economist who does that. Um, and then, uh, you know, I try and hit some of the uh, political websites, uh, you know, some of them on, on, on both sides uh, mm -hmm. of the political divide uh, to see what, uh, what, what, what's concerning people. If you had 30 extra minutes in a day, what would you do with it? You know, I remember getting that question once at a, uh, uh, a time management seminar that we had at the, at the Fed. And my answer was what I think uh, maybe a lot of economists would say was, well, I'd just divide it up you know, between all the things that I'm doing now. So if I'm spending, uh, you know, if I'm spending a third of my time sleeping, okay, I'll take a third of that 30 minutes and sleep more. If, if, I'm, if I'm already optimizing, right, the economist would say, then that extra 30 minutes ought to be divided roughly uh, the same way that I'm doing things now. That's, that's a very uh, astute um, way of looking at it. I wouldn't expect anything less. That's great. Um, how about a book? And, you know, obviously someone... Um, with your sort of education, academic background, there's, there's tons out there, but is there, could you point to one or two that have been the most influential to you? You know, I think, and this, this would be really boring, but uh, the, the, the basic uh, finance and accounting texts are awfully important to me. And those basics uh, are, are, are just so, uh, so critical. And I think those have been the most influential for me. 
Great. And then uh, just kind of in summary here, if you were in one sentence to define success, um, how would you define it? I think it's being able to do what you want to do. I, I think I, I wouldn't do very well in a, uh, you know, kind of a regimented position where people were telling me, uh, uh, you know, what to do. Although, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, people who can, uh, who can, uh, uh, you know, follow directions and, uh, and, and do things like that, that's uh, fantastic. Uh, but I just have a hard time with that. And so for me, uh, succeeding is, is just being able to do exactly what I want, uh, what I want to do. Awesome. Thank you so much, David, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's fun. This episode was produced by Joe Coffee of Coffee Grande Studios. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at CB Journal. 